Picture, if you will, an apple. It's red or green, it's crunchy and juicy. It's a very nice apple. And that apple has a market value. Now, picture a change in the world that results in everyone deciding that apples should be free. In that scenario, what happens to the people who plant and grow and harvest the apples? They still have a product, but they can't get paid in the way they used to. Now, picture that that apple is in demand everywhere. Every time you turn on your TV and see a commercial, there's that apple. When you download an app for your phone, there's that apple. In the movies, in video games, in restaurants, there's that apple. In 2015, the music business is kind of like this. Everyone wants to use music because music sets moods. It creates emotions, it makes people want to dance. In other words, it has value. Yet the marketplace says it's free. This is the dilemma that people who make music find themselves in today. It still costs the same to record and press and promote an album, yet we can't sell this product like we used to. So those of us who produce the music, the artists and labels, have to wonder how long we can keep this up. Is there a future in music or what? I'm Portia Sabin. Today on The Future of What, we're starting with a question that's been in the news recently. Why did the internet radio company Pandora buy a terrestrial radio station? Pandora bought KXMZ-FM in Rapid City, South Dakota, for $600,000. The Rapid City media market has a little more than 96,000 listeners, which means it's smaller than 265 other cities and towns in the U.S. The station itself sounds like almost every other pop station in America. The slogan for KXMZ-FM 1027 is, All the hits without the rap. Let's take a listen. Mumford & Sons. Believe. Today's best hits, it's 1027. Join Mike in the morning tomorrow morning because that is when you can call in and talk to crazy psychic Sheila and get your free mini reading. Ask her about your love life or just have her pick up on the vibes you have going on. That's all going on tomorrow morning between 8 and 9 on today's best hits, it's 1027. We're able to hear KXMZ FM because it streams its signal. And like other terrestrial stations, KXMZ pays nothing to artists on the master side and a low royalty rate to publishers and songwriters. That's right, you heard me, nothing. So what is Pandora's idea in buying this station? Are they trying to change the royalty rates that they have to pay to artists by claiming they're a terrestrial radio company? How will musicians fare if they succeed? We're going to look into this more today on The Future of What. Stay with us. We asked Pandora to come on the future of what today, and they declined. So we're not going to hear from them directly. But we've been poring over Pandora's investment calls, documents, and public filings, and we found some really interesting stuff in the tapes they recorded for their investors. When you think of how far we've come over the last four years as a publicly traded company, it's astounding to see the numbers. That's Pandora's VP of Investor Relations, Dominic Pachel, speaking at an investor conference in Miami earlier this month. Just from a registered user base, we're now approaching 300 million. That means 300 million people have signed up for Pandora. And of course, many of those people are listening on their mobile devices. When you think of mobile, Pandora is fundamentally the most mobile of any U.S. application out there. We do roughly 1,400 minutes per active listener. That surpasses that of Facebook at about 1,300 minutes. You heard that right. According to Pandora, they're right there with Google and Facebook when it comes to mobile usage. Pandora is the third largest 
uh, producer of mobile revenues in the United States after uh, Google and Facebook. That means good money for Pandora off of mobile ads. In fact, Pandora accounts for 10% of all radio listening, online and terrestrial. But here's the thing. Each time Pandora is played, it has to pay artists. We pay a sound recording royalty, which goes uh, through sound exchange, half to the artist and half to the label. That's the largest portion of our cost of content line, about 92, 93%. That's paid on a per track, per play basis. The second royalty goes, goes to the music com- uh, composition rights. These go through PROs, performance rights organizations, such as ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. Um, ultimately, the key for Pandora's model is how we drive um, the leverage between the revenue side of things, which would be our RPM, and the cost side of things, which would be our LPM. Uh, we have made tremendous strides in terms of expanding that gross margin, um, in which, in turn, rather, we have invested into the core of the business. So, if licensing fees to ASCAP and BMI could be reduced by buying a terrestrial radio station in South Dakota, that would help with the cost side of things for the company. Later, we'll talk to David Israelite of the NMPA about his views of this move. One last interesting bit we got out of these investor calls. And artists, you'll want to pay attention to this. This is Pandora's perspective on their function in the music industry. Our goal is not to be, uh, you know, we're not to be the entire paycheck for artists. We want to be a means by with which, you know, someone who's working, a, a, you know, a job but also touring during the, during the uh during kind of summer months or what have you. Um, our goal is to help them monetize and to give them exposure. We play, more than 85% of our artists get no airtime on broadcast radio. And so oftentimes you hear the most vocal debate taking place, uh, you know, with respect, obviously, to larger artists. Very few of those artists, though, from after the top 200, um, have that platform, have the access to the consumers in any other place, meaningful place than Pandora. Mm-hmm. And so in the way that radio is a promotional mechanism for and a breaking of new artist mechanism um, uh, for, for young artists, Pandora is becoming back for the next generation, which is fascinating. In other words, even before Pandora bought the station in South Dakota, the company saw itself as serving the exact same function terrestrial radio has played for almost a century, which is that terrestrial radio doesn't have to pay artists because they provide such important promotion for artists. And that is not a proposition that most people would agree with at this point in history. To discuss this further, we're going to talk to David Israelite, the president of the National Music Publishers Association. He's joining us by phone from Washington, D.C., David, welcome to the future of what? Well, thanks so much for having me. So first, David, could you just explain for our audience what the NMPA is and what you guys do? Sure. Um, We're the trade association that represents all of the music publishers and songwriters in the United States. And so as a trade association, we basically represent what they care about in Washington, whether that means lobbying Congress on behalf of songwriter issues or litigating cases in court to protect the rights of songwriters and music publishers, all the way to giving out gold and platinum awards to those songwriters that have written hits. So we provide a lot of different services to our members, and ultimately we're the place where a lot of the activity happens with regard to the industry. 
So we spoke a couple weeks ago with Carrie Ann Marshall, who works for Songs Music Publishing. So, so Songs would be one of your members, correct? Yes, they are. In fact, not only are they a member, but their head, Matt Pincus, is one of my board members. Awesome. Now, what about BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC? So BMI, ASCAP, and CSAC are three private companies that provide a service to music publishers and songwriters. One of the ways that songwriters and music publishers make their money is what's known as a performance right. It basically means whenever music is transmitted to the public, things like radio, bars and restaurants, things of that nature. And what ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC do, and there's another as well known as GMR, is they license the rights to the music, to the people that want to use the music for public performances, and then they collect the money and then they distribute the money. So they are a very important part of the ecosystem of the music industry. So today on our episode, we are talking about Pandora and this move that they've just recently had approved to purchase a terrestrial radio station in South Dakota. So could you give us an overview of the NMPA's reaction to this move? Sure. And I'll uh, try not to use any cuss words since we're on the air. (laughs) Um, I think it's important to preface what I'm going to say with that I want everyone to understand that I look at digital music companies as our business partners. A lot of people very much don't like what's happening in the music industry as people move away from some of the older models to some of the newer models, whether that be that they're not buying records or CDs or even downloads anymore, and they're moving to services more like YouTube or Spotify or or a Pandora. And I'm not someone who has a problem with that movement. I think in general, there's going to be change. That change can always be scary, but it also can provide opportunities. And I look at the digital music companies as really business partners, even though we may have some issues where we disagree or there's tension in the relationship. Overall, I think of them as business partners. Pandora, however, is a digital music company that I would separate from most others and say that this company has uniquely been hostile to the people that create music. And we can talk about the reasons why, but more than any other company that we deal with, Pandora really has waged war against songwriters. And it's a really unfortunate thing because when Pandora first launched, I was one of the many people that liked the service, thought it provided a very interesting new way to discover music. And unfortunately, over time, what I've come to discover is that they're not good partners at all. And in fact, they're really doing everything in their power to use the music of songwriters and artists and pay them as little as they possibly can, whether they use gimmicks like buying this radio station that we'll talk about, or they run to Congress and look for special laws, or they even go to court looking for ways to pay less. And it's really unfortunate. And it probably goes back to the fundamental problem with the relationship, and that is that Pandora and the people that create the music, they don't have to ever negotiate and agree on the terms of Pandora using the music. Pandora basically needs permission from two different groups. They need permission from the songwriters that we represent who write the songs, and then they separately need permission from the record labels and artists that record the songs. Well, because of some really crazy things that go on under the law, both of those rights, Pandora today, is able to extract without any agreement from the music industry. Against record labels, there's a compulsory license in the law that basically says the record labels have to license to Pandora, and every five years there's a trial where three judges in Washington, D.C., decide on how much Pandora pays the record labels and artists. And in fact, that trial's going on for the next five years right now. When it comes to songwriters, 
we're not regulated by the law, but instead, the two companies that you mentioned, ASCAP and BMI, which represent a very large percent of the music, they find themselves regulated by the United States Justice Department because in 1941, the Justice Department thought that these two companies were too large and they put them under what's known as a consent decree. And what happens under the consent decree is that if you're one of the songwriters that is represented by ASCAP or BMI, and it's the vast majority of them, then ASCAP and BMI cannot say no to Pandora. And instead, they go to a single federal judge in the Southern District of New York, and that judge sets the price. And so because Pandora has been able to piece together the record label rights through a trial in Washington and the rights to songwriters, mostly through trials in New York in federal court, they've taken an attitude that they don't need to be our partners. And so when it comes to this radio station, what this is simply about is that a long time ago, ASCAP made a deal with broadcast radio owners, people that run AM and FM stations. And under that deal, ASCAP agreed that when those broadcast stations have a very, at the time, a very small promotional element that is done on the internet, they would let that be covered by the overall deal that they did with the broadcasters. And in the case of ASCAP, they agreed that the broadcasters could pay them, I think it was 1.7% of their revenue. Well, Pandora is currently required to pay ASCAP because of the trial that they went to, 1.85% of their revenue. It's an incredibly small amount, but yet that's not good enough for Pandora. So instead, what they've done in a very gimmicky way is they are going to purchase a very small FM station in South Dakota. Then what they're going to argue is that we're no longer an internet company that has to pay 1.85%, but rather we're a broadcaster that gets to pay 1.7%. So this is an internet company, Pandora, that is going to the extraordinary length of buying a radio station they don't care about, spending money on that, spending money on lawyers, and the entire purpose is so that they can screw songwriters out of another 0.15% of their revenue. That is so, truly incredible. It is. And so if you're wondering why the songwriting and music publishing community is just up in arms about this company, all you have to do is look at this one example of how they behave to understand why there's so much hostility. Now, David, my understanding is that if they are somehow able to convince the world, who, who, you know, the Congress, whoever it is that they need to convince that they are now a terrestrial broadcaster, does that mean they would be suddenly exempt from paying sound exchange for the artists and labels? Well, they haven't yet tried to do that, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did. Because in addition to the war that they wage on songwriters, they also take a very hostile and aggressive approach toward recording artists. So for example, when Pandora first started operating, they would pay SoundExchange, which is the body responsible for licensing and collecting the rights for artists and labels, for songs that were recorded before 1972. The reason why the date 1972 is important is because that's when Congress, for the first time, gave copyright protection to sound recordings. Because Pandora has to pay SoundExchange under this same copyright regime, they are now claiming that they don't have to pay for songs that were recorded before 1972 because the law doesn't require them to, even though they initially started doing it when they first formed. And so for the older artists that probably need the money the most, they are being denied any compensation from Pandora because, again, they think that they found a loophole in the law 
that they can avoid paying those artists that happen to record songs prior to this artificial date of 1972. So whether Pandora would also then take that argument to its further extreme and try to avoid paying all artists, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. This is a company that has no interest in being a good business partner with either artists or songwriters. And so I think that we have to suspect that all of their motives are in question. I was reading an article on Wikipedia about Pandora, and it said that 88% of their revenue is gleaned from advertising, and they spend about 50% on royalties. So clearly what they're trying to do is bring that royalty rate down so that they can create more money for their stockholders. There's no question. And if you just want one example of just how unfair it's become, the founder of Pandora cashed out for himself more in his own stock options than the company paid every songwriter combined. Wow. That is a just shocking statistic. That is. And it gives you some sense of where their priorities are. Absolutely. And I should make clear, I'm not against the founder of Pandora getting rich, very rich. In fact, I'd like him to get richer. But there should be some proportion between the amount of money being pulled out of the company by the owners and how much they pay the writers that make their service possible. Because remember, Pandora does nothing else but deliver music to consumers. It doesn't have news or sports or weather or talk. It's just music. And today, Pandora seems to think that it deserves for itself 11 times more to deliver a song than the song itself is worth. And that's where I think things have really gotten out of whack. Absolutely. And it's very disappointing in this day and age when other internet services like Spotify are not able to turn a profit that a model that is working, like Pandora's, is at the same time so aggressively trying to reduce their royalty rate. That's true. There are a lot of problems with the Pandora business model. One of the problems is they don't do a very good job of getting their consumers to actually upgrade to the paid service. They are mostly a free-to-the-consumer service. And then secondly, they don't do a very good job of selling advertising. And so I believe last year, for example, they represented about 10% of the radio listening market, but yet they were only generating about 2% of the radio advertising pool. So when people talk about these percentage numbers, for example, we just talked about how much the broadcasters have to pay versus Pandora. 1.7% of the money raised by broadcasters from advertising is significantly more than 1.7% of the advertising raised by Pandora when the broadcasters do a five times better job of selling ads. Wow. And so it's not just about the number and the percent. It's also about how deep the pool is that that percent applies to. So, David, what do you think the next steps should be in this situation? Well, from a songwriter perspective, probably the most important step is going to be what's happening right now with the Justice Department. The Justice Department is considering making changes to these consent decrees that oversee ASCAP and BMI. And one of the most important things that they could do is give rights holders the ability to get out of what is known as the consent decree and into a free market. If the people that represent songwriters were in a free market, like pretty much everyone else who represents property is, and actually had to negotiate with Pandora, I think you would see a very different result. Because if the people that represent the songs didn't like the terms of the deal, they could say no. They could actually not allow their songs to be played on Pandora, whereas today, that's not the case. So I think the most important thing that can happen for the songwriting and music publishing community is the government can get out of the way, and this can operate like any normal business relationship should. You have a willing seller and a willing buyer, and the terms they agree on would be fair to both. 
And so that's our number one focus right now. Fantastic. So, David, Pandora's CEO said last week that they're going to have a new model of advertising in which they allow corporations like Taco Bell to come up with playlists on Pandora and that that's going to be an innovative technique for advertising. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know whether that's going to be appealing to consumers or not. Quite honestly, I don't see the appeal in it. One of the things that Pandora was supposed to do is that if you told it the type of music that you like, it was going to suggest other music that was somehow related to your interest and taste and offer new music that you might discover. How having a franchise like Taco Bell put together a curated playlist would lead to that, I just don't know. You know, I, I'm happy to have them try, and, and I hope they're successful because, again, the more money that they can raise for themselves, the more that will get passed on under the very low rates that we currently do get. And we want these digital companies to succeed. But I think that probably Pandora's biggest problem right now is that it's not in a partnership with the music industry. And as a result, I think that there are very bad feelings about how they treat the people that create the music that make their business possible. So they tried a lot of gimmicks, and I think maybe it's more about blocking and tackling and getting back to the basics than it is about offering Taco Bell playlists. That makes me think, of course, of songwriters sitting at home writing songs about burritos. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> even successful songwriters have a hard time affording Taco Bell if they're only getting paid by Pandora. There so you go. Maybe there's some connection there about uh, songwriters needing to eat only Taco Bell. Exactly. So the CEO also said this last week that Pandora has over a billion dollars in revenue and that they have more users than Facebook and that in the future, their greatest asset is going to be the data that they mine from their users, which you can understand, of course, being an internet radio service, they're going to have more access to data on their listeners than terrestrial radio would have. What do you have to say about those? Well, sure. On the first point, I think it's great that they're able to talk about a total amount of money that they've raised in their existence. But as long as the rates stay as low as they are for songwriters and music publishers, it really doesn't mean very much. They are not a significant income stream for a working songwriter today. It's true that artists and record labels make significantly more from Pandora. Right now, I think artists and labels make about 44% of Pandora's revenue, while the people that create the songs are only making 4%. And so while I think that artists and record labels still have their own issues with Pandora, at least they're getting paid a significant rate, whereas the songwriters are not. On the number of users that they have, I think that's great. It's a free service for most people, so I understand why it's attractive to a lot of people. I wish they would do a better job of upselling their customers to the paid tier because I think that's much more valuable to the creators of music. But the number of subscribers doesn't surprise me at all. And on the final point, I think it's great that they're sharing the data that they learn with the people that create the music. But I have a couple of problems. Number one, they should have been doing this all along. Why this is something they are just now doing, I don't quite understand. And number two, and probably most importantly for songwriters, that data does not help a songwriter. What it's really meant to do is help an artist connect with their fans when they tour. And unfortunately, because of the way that the music industry is developing, touring is becoming a significantly more important revenue source for artists because they're not making the same amount of money from selling CDs and records and things like that. And so touring is very much more important. But if you're a songwriter, you don't make money from touring. And so I think it's another thing that they're throwing out there to say that they're being good partners with the music community. But yet, again, 
They're ignoring the very people who write the songs. They don't benefit from this type of data. What they really want is to be paid fairly. The data is nice, but unless you're paying them fairly, it doesn't mean much. Absolutely. David, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was David Israelite. He's the CEO of the NMPA. I'm Portia Sabin. The future of what continues here on X-Ray FM. of what we keep our focus on Pandora and talk to Paul Reznikoff from Digital Music News. I'm Portia Sabin. Stay with us. Future of What continues on X-Ray FM. I'm Portia Sabin. We're going to continue our discussion about Pandora and the company's decision to buy a South Dakota radio station by turning to Paul Reznikoff. Paul Reznikoff is the editor of Digital Music News. He joined us from his office in L.A. Paul, welcome to the Future of What. All right. So how long have you been publishing Digital Music News? Uh, I sort of lost track. I think we're going on six plus seven years, something like that. Kind of forgot when it stopped being a hobby and then turned into a business, but around there. (laughs) Well, it's quickly become kind of the go-to publication for the music industry as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I get it every day in my inbox. I rely on it. Everyone I know always sends me stories from it, so you should be really proud. We're pumped. Actually, the the strange challenge we have right now is, what the hell is this music industry? We're, we're trying to figure out where our audience is, where they're going to be. It just it used to be a lot easier. Yeah. Why did you start it? Frankly, I started because I used to work in the music industry myself, and I was on the tech side all of a sudden. And this was like way back in the day. And I was really trying to meet every new player in music technology. And I just didn't have a good place to read about music startups, issues related to codecs, DRM, all the issues of like way back when. And I started to talk to other executives. They're having the same problem. So I started creating this little digest just between me and like 50 executives, sent it out on email. And that was the genesis of it. And then just kept expanding it. And I realized there are more and more people who had absolutely Absolutely no clue what was going on in the space. And, um, you know, it's funny because in 2015, I think every executive feels exactly the same way. Yeah, that they still don't know what's going on. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, I feel like there's been such a bad PR job done on the music industry. I feel like people don't understand. They just think labels are all major labels and labels just screw artists and take their money and that's it. And there's no in between. And I feel like there's so many thousands of us who work every day in the music business doing perfectly good things for artists and musicians and helping people have careers. I was like, let's actually do a show where people can talk to and listen to some of the people who really are in the trenches every single day and so that they know what's going on. So it's kind of an educational endeavor as well as just a way to get people aware of the issues. That sounds great. Gosh, you mentioned the the image problem that the music industry has. I don't know if that's ever going to go away. And part of the reason is there's just been so much bad behavior over the past few decades. It's it's kind of hard to make that go away overnight. But there's a lot of a lot of good people in the biz too. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the image problem not going away because the instant visual I got in my head was that video for the title launch with Jay Z and Madonna and all those people. Because I was like, man, that totally takes me back to remember back in the day when. People started file sharing for free and Metallica were like, hey, man, don't do that. You're taking money out of our pockets. And everyone was like, screw you, Metallica. Like, who cares? You get one less mansion or whatever. Yeah. Let's just say this, Portia. I I just don't think if they had to do it all over again, if they would have had that press conference, Mm. I think it would have just been like Jay-Z and maybe, you know, that's it. Just kind of announcing it and, you know, and and then we go doing a little bit more low key because... Yeah, you had the Metallica style backlash, right? Like everyone's like, wait a second, like Dead Mouse, Madonna, like these guys are like <laughs> multimillionaires. Like, what's their problem? Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not getting enough. Yeah, you, you mentioned the Metallica kerfuffle. And the fallout from Metallica was that every artist basically got freaked out. They basically realized that the winds of public relations were, were blowing against them, that anyone who complained about file sharing or anything like that would catch all this negative publicity. So for about 10 years, Every single artist just avoided the issue entirely. And they they didn't speak out against their fans, even if their fans weren't helping them and pirating all their content. But I would argue, Portia, that that these days we're seeing a lot of artists speaking out, uh, whether it's the Black Keys or Taylor Swift or Prince or whomever it is, there's a a body of artists and and a lot of creative people that are sort of saying, hey, you know, WTF, like there's a problem here. I agree. I think you're right. I think there's a lot more speaking out starting, and I think the climate is changing a little bit for that. But it's funny and a little bit ironic that that's happening right at the same time when pirated music is becoming less and less of a big concern for people because of the rise of different technologies. And that's what we wanted to talk to you about today because you've been covering, I mean, obviously for six years, you've been covering all the new technologies, but you've been covering Pandora for a while. So I wanted to talk specifically about Pandora today. And I want to start by asking you, what is positive about Pandora for the music industry? Well, Pandora is a really, really complicated company. It just goes to show that it's really hard to predict the future. Because when Pandora, the concept first came out, it was this sort of brainy music genome project. You know, Tim Westergren was like the like Stanford grad or like came up with this complicated thing and was losing a lot of money on it. But it turns out that uh, this sort of less interactive radio format is actually what a lot of people really like. That instead of users being their own DJs and sort of manning the controls all day, a lot of people are gravitating towards Pandora, songs, uh, just formats that sort of prepare the dish for you instead of you picking stuff out independently. And that has been totally shocking. Do you remember, was it Turntable FM? 
that was that short-lived service for a while that was so fun. I remember being so into that and having a whole bunch of people that were so into that. And then eventually you were just like, oh, this is a total time suck. I can't, I just can't DJ my, you know, in my little turntable room for an hour a day or two hours a day or whatever. So it is interesting that Pandora's model, sort of this non-interactive, you just set it and it goes model has actually been what has resonated with people so well. And it's made it actually profitable, right? I mean, they've actually been making money. Uh, I wouldn't go so far. I mean, they've had, (laughs) there's been a quarter or two in the black, but for the most part, the financial model around Pandora is problematic to say the least. And that's, of course, one of the problems that Pandora has been trying to rectify. And I think they're trying to reduce those royalties. Is that your impression? Oh, yeah. that's it. They spend a lot of energy trying to reduce their royalties. And there's recording royalties. There's publishing royalties. There's this big, big portion of their revenues goes back to rights owners. And Pandora views that, that as a problem. I'm not sure it's a, it's a problem. It's the cost of goods. It's just that Pandora hasn't quite figured out a way to pay for content and make a profit at the same time. Right. I read on Wikipedia that 88% of their income, at least for the year that they did that study, which I think was 2012, came from advertising revenue. And so that just goes to show that they're certainly not making money from Pandora as a subscription service or as a non-free model. It's funny. I turned my uncle on to Pandora One, and he's a real big jazz listener. And, and so he subscribed. And that was a few years ago. And he's still a subscriber. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's the only person I, I ever have known to subscribe to Pandora. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that Pandora's put a very, very, very heavy emphasis on a mass of users. And they believe that the way to the user's heart and to keep users engaged is not to charge them. That, that, that sort of scares them away. That's sort of what Wall Street wants to see, that boosts their valuation. So, you know, they could flip the switch and, and charge their users more, but that hasn't been their strategy. Well, and of course, it makes sense because that's the terrestrial radio model. Nobody's going hungry in terrestrial radio, and they, or at least not the big mega corporations that own terrestrial radio, like Clear Channel. And, you know, they, they get their money from advertising. And they, of course, don't have to pay royalties in the same way that, that Internet radio does. That's right. So, right. You're del- delving in all the complicated rules. There's a big question, too, Portia, which is, and, you know, tell me what you're seeing out there. But I'm, huh, it's, it's tough to charge users and make that the basis of your model. Um, there are companies that, are, that only charge users and are suffering very greatly. Uh, I, I'm not sure really how much music fans or listeners or the population is, is willing to pay for music. It's a, it's a big, big question in my mind. Well, I feel like I've seen a chart very recently on digital music news showing that something like 93% of respondents to a survey still listen to terrestrial radio as sort of their like second main form of media consumption, the number one form being TV. Yeah, th- I, th- I know that exact study you're talking about. That's sort of this overlap study. So the 93%, it's like it's like a cake. You have like TV would be 95, radio 93, meaning these people listen to radio like at least, I don't know, three times a week or turn on the TV you know, for at least an hour a week. And it goes all the way up this pyramid of usage up until the top, which is you know, you have like 1% of people use um, a next generation watch kind of thing. And yeah, it's pretty fascinating when you look at that because the, the, the amount of time people spend with fairly traditional formats is actually still pretty big. It takes a long, long time, though 
I mean, the tradition is the transition is happening, but yeah, it takes a long time for people to to shift away from old, solid, traditional formats. I think. Well, also, it's so easy. I mean, if you just turn on the radio and there's music, I think a lot of people are really willing to sit through the commercials just to have the ease of, well, I just turned it on, you know, and there it is. And it's sort of the same with Pandora. It's really true. Actually, with radio, there there are a few things like besides radio and like your toaster that are actually that easy to use. Yeah, exactly. And when we, one thing we know about Americans, we love convenience. Yes. We love it if it's easy. It's if it's easy, we will do it. I, what did I just read? I just America. read something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We can't say that on the radio, but yeah. I just read something that was like, if you have a bowl of M&Ms on your desk, but you push it two feet farther away, you'll eat like 80% less M&Ms. Someone really? just did that study. Yeah, I huh. just saw that yesterday. Because like, we are that lazy as a culture. We're just like, nope, two feet farther and I have to lean over. Can't do it. <laughs> That's a brilliant study. I know. <laughs> Because now I'm going to push it to two, yeah, uh, what do is it, it. two feet. Two feet. Yeah. You have to okay. push it two feet. So it's like just out of reach. Like it's kind of a pain to actually <laughs> get your m and That's great. That is great. Um, well, yeah, it's same thing with fast food. If it's not in the, the lane you're in, like if you have to like cross over the street to go to the drive-thru. Oh, forget you're like, it. Yeah, 70% yeah. less likely to go to that fast food. You're like, guess I'm eating Burger King today. <laughs> Sorry, Taco Bell. Totally. Oh, my God. That's classic. So um, we're sort of still talking about Pandora here. I wanted to just sort of pick your brain for a second on this latest move that they've made, which is to purchase a terrestrial radio station in South Dakota. What do you think about that? They're trying to take advantage of a loophole, basically. In their defense, the way they, they would look at it is they'd say, well, the rules around radio royalties are all messed up. They're different depending on what specific type of radio we're talking about. If it's broadcast radio, the royalty is different than internet radio, is different than satellite radio, and it doesn't make any sense. So what they've tried to do is by purchasing a broadcast traditional radio tower in Rapid City, try to take advantage of a lower royalty rate. So that's sort of the game they're playing. The other way to look at it is to say, well, wow, these guys are spending a lot of money trying to lower royalty rates. And that's, that's certainly not being viewed kindly by, by the artist community. Well, it's just like the headline that's very hot on digital music news right now, which is Spotify can't afford to pay artists, but they can pay to have six lobbying firms. It is sort of ridiculous. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've, actually, I've actually sat in on some of those hearings and yeah, there's a lot of lawyers, a lot of lobbyists, a lot of money that's being poured into this. And so, yeah, that's sort of like, what does that say about a lot of sort of the way that tech approaches the music industry? This has nothing to do with artists. Uh, it's, it's really about technical royalty payouts and lowering them. It's, it's no wonder that I think a lot of people in the artist community feel distanced or sort of neglected by what a lot of these giant streaming tech companies are doing in the space. So, Paul, what do you think is the end game for these streaming services? Really, if you look at someone like Spotify, I think they've they've got to figure out a way to have an exit event. You know, that's what all the investors want and need. And they're so overvalued at eight plus billion dollars that it sort of feels like the only way they can do that is through a Wall Street IPO. But by spending so much money, they're sort of going this long-term sort of Amazon route, right? Where you sort of starve the rest of the competition and then the streaming space becomes yours. And so that might work. You know, that could work. Uh, Spotify could figure it out. They could go public. And um, who knows? I mean, they might even figure out how to be profitable with enough subscribers. They'd really have to ramp that up. But 
this is a well-worn, big, big dollar Silicon Valley strategy. It has worked sometimes. It can also um, crash and burn into the, the biggest uh, ball of fire you've ever seen in your life. So, <laughs> <laughs> What do you think if they were to do an IPO, what do you think would happen? Like, Is there the chance? Because for someone like me, I would be really worried of having them do an IPO because I would be afraid that someone would purchase them and then shut them down or just completely transform the way they do business. It's a good point. Uh, you're right. So once it's in Wall Street's hands, but Pandora is publicly traded. And, you know, I guess maybe that's proving your, your concern, right? Which is like Pandora is, has very, very aggressive and serious efforts to lower royalties. And they've become like the big bad corporation that we, we all fear. So yeah, there is, there is that concern. I, I'm a little bit concerned about how many people would actually pay for for music subscription. So Spotify is 15 million. That's not enough. That's not enough people paying. And, and if you look at the breakdown of where the revenue really comes from, it's from paying subscribers. So, you know, when this whole thing started and, you know, streaming started to really take off, we were thinking, oh yeah, you know, Spotify will have 100 million paying subscribers. And if it never gets to that point, then, you know, I'm not even sure if they can kind of sell this, this leaky bag on Wall Street, right? Because... It's sort of like Wall Street is very skeptical after Pandora and sort of digital music models. So it's it would be hard to do an IPO with like 15 million subscribers. Right. So it's a very uncertain future for these guys. And that's so crazy to say it's valued at 8 billion because that's ha- that's more than half the music industry combined. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That, that's like it is, that is the it craziest is. valuation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul Reznikov is the editor of Digital Music News. He joined us from his office in Los Angeles via Skype. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you. Listening to the future of what? A show about the music industry. I'm host and president of Kill Rockstars, Portia Sabin. Today we're talking about Pandora and the company's new radio station in Rapid City, South Dakota. Earlier, you heard from an investor call from Pandora where they discussed their outlook. We want to mention the company has not publicly talked about the purchase of the radio station other than in a statement they gave to the New York Times. I'm going to quote now from that article. Pandora said the deal for KXMZ makes sense to us beyond the licensing parity alone, adding that it would apply its data on music listening habits to Rapid City, where over 42,000 residents already use Pandora. And of course, as you heard earlier, Pandora's VP of Investor Relations said this is about the role it sees itself playing for career musicians. Our goal is not to be, uh, you know, we're not to be the entire paycheck for artists. We want to be a means by with which you know someone who's working a, you know a job but also touring during the during the uh, during kind of summer months or what have you. Um, our goal is to help them monetize and to give them exposure. We play more than 85% of our artists get no airtime 
on broadcast radio. And so oftentimes you hear the most vocal debate taking place, uh, you know, with respect, obviously, to larger artists. Very few of those artists, though, from after the top 200, um, have that platform, have the access to the consumers in any other place, meaningful place than Pandora. And so in the way that radio is a promotional mechanism for and a breaking of new artist mechanism um, uh, for, for young artists, Pandora is becoming that for the next generation, which is fascinating. Now, anyone who has ever tried to get terrestrial radio play knows it's almost impossible. But Casey Ray says streaming services could help. Casey's the head of the Future of Music Coalition, a music and technology advocacy group. And he's said in the past that we've got a lot of mixed feelings about Pandora, but also believe that webcasting is incredibly important to the independent sector due to the fact that Terrestrial has been closed off to indies for decades. Casey Ray joins us now by Skype. Casey, welcome to the Future of What? Well, thank you for having me. We've got a future in both of our titles, so we're off to a great start. I know. We're clearly simpatico. Mm -hmm. So I invited you to come on here because the future of music has always been somewhat of a tech organization, certainly tech-friendly. So I was hoping that you could help us because a lot of this that stuff that we're talking about today is very sort of tech-complicated, and I thought maybe you'd do yeah. a really good job of explaining things for the layperson you know, just sure. the, the standard person. So can you start by explaining the difference between interactive and non-interactive radio stations? Absolutely. In the old days, you basically just had radio in terms of the marketplace where you didn't have to buy an album to listen to it. Uh, you turned on the radio and you heard music and maybe a, some, some subset of that uh, listening audience was motivated to go to the record store and buy a record, and that's how the industry functioned. Well, when digital came along, uh, you had the possibility of having radio or radio-like services on the Internet, which was really, really exciting, particularly at the time that that technology came to the marketplace, because, you know, one of the things that was such a challenge to the independent sector in the old days was, you know, we were pretty much foreclosed from commercial radio. We had college stations, which were awesome and continue to be awesome, some non-commercial stations, which were awesome and the few that are left continue to be awesome but for the most part you know there was a lot of consolidation in the commercial AM FM radio marketplace that basically made it impossible for an indie label or a local artist to reach audiences on the airwaves Correct. so what was cool about webcasting was all of a sudden you had wow the potential to do not only play more music but to serve niche listening populations like you know, a, a fan of American bluegrass music in Australia didn't really face any tremendous barrier to entry in hearing the music that they liked uh, over this thing called the Internet. You know, and the other opportunity was, wow, we can do something in terms of royalties for performing artists that we've never been able to do in the U.S., which is get them paid at all. Because FM radio is not required by law to compensate performers or sound copyright owners, which is usually the label, but can also be the artist. So a lot of us at the time kind of banded together to make sure, this was like the mid-90s, early 2000s, to make sure that not only did we have a mechanism to pay performers as well as labels for these digital radio plays, but that the splits were fair. And we accomplished something pretty unique by creating this organization, Sound Exchange, which has representation on the board, um, you know, indie label, major label, and also artists. Sound Exchange collects and distributes that royalty for digital airplay and distributes it basically 50 50 
half to the sound copyright owner, which can be the label, but also can be the artist, and half to the featured performer. And that money is direct, and it's not held against any artist's debt to the copyright owner. So that's all very exciting, right? Something else happened a little bit later. The law classified webcasters as non-interactive, meaning there's some limitations on what you can do with it. Back then, it was like kind of an emerging download marketplace when the iTunes store showed up, and webcasters like Pandora. But they were very, very different iTunes basically emulates the old sales model where you pay for a thing and then you download that thing and that thing is yours. But later on came a new type of service called Interactive. So that is your Spotify, Rhapsody, Radio, Beats Music, soon to be whatever Apple calls it. And in that universe, you, you can do a lot more things, right? It's still streaming, but you can, as a listener, select exactly what song you want to hear. Select exactly what album you want to hear. Store it for offline listening on your mobile device. Make playlists and share those playlists with other people on the service. Whereas non-interactive, like Pandora, you know, it's customizable to your taste. There's an algorithm that plays the music that the robot thinks that you want to hear, but you can't do any of those other things. So now we're in like this kind of weird position where it feels like we're all shifting to streaming. And if you look at the what that really means, it's like a major format shift. You know, possibly the biggest format shift that we've seen since the long player album in terms of how it's affecting the underlying economics of the entire industry. So all of a sudden there's pressure, I think, additional pressure on the non-interactive or webcasting side to make up for revenue that's sort of disappearing from the higher margin sales side, whether it be CDs or downloads. I'll stop talking now for a minute. <laughs> no, this is great. So we're talking today mainly about Pandora because they've just got the go-ahead to purchase this terrestrial radio station in South Dakota. So on this show, we're really trying to explain to people what that means for the industry. And Pandora itself is a really interesting example, as you've been saying, because one thing about them is that they are sort of the original non-interactive internet radio format meaning, you know, you don't have as much, you can't pick exactly the song you want to hear, but you do, you know, they have that algorithm, whatever. You can figure out, you know, like, I like stuff like the Rolling Stones or whatever, and you can listen to your channel. But the other thing about Pandora is they've been really sort of surprisingly successful. I mean, they are, in fact, making money. They had an initial public offering, and they have shareholders, and they, those shareholders are getting money. And so that's kind of a big win for the industry to have any internet model of music distribution that, that's being successful. But of course, the problem is that they are now trying to find ways to dodge paying royalties or to lower the amount of money yeah. that they have to pay out for royalties. So what is the future of music's position on this issue? Well, it's really interesting because I've been doing this for long enough to remember when uh, Pandora, that service itself, you know, uh, not webcasting generally, but Pandora, was actually looked at a lot more favorably by the rights holders and artists because on one level, it was brand new money for record labels and performers who had never, ever, ever been compensated for radio in the past. So that was kind of exciting. If the marketplace had frozen at downloads, I think the conversation would be very, very different right now. But we have one side, which is probably pretty clearly substitutional, right? That's the on-demand streaming service, uh, like Spotify and so on and so forth. And then you have this lean-back service where it's a little bit hard to tell, like, what percentage of that listening base would have bought a CD or a download, and what should the rate be? 
you know, for for webcasting. And Pandora definitely has done some fairly provocative things, right? Like they're a publicly traded company. There's definitely quarterly shareholder reports, and I'm sure there's a lot of pressure to keep that stock price anywhere near attractive for shareholders. But, you know, some of it is also just the normal tension that happens between somebody that's a supplier and somebody that's um, a distributor. Like, you know, they're always going to fight about rates. And Pandora, what they're trying to do with the purchase of the radio station, I think, primarily is to become eligible for the FM radio rate that is just a hair lower than what the current ASCAP rates are. But, you know, that discount, so to speak, would be a big, big savings for Pandora at a time when they're probably trying to appease their stockholders and keep their costs down. But for songwriters whose rates are probably already suppressed under this government rate setting, both on mechanical royalties and on performance royalties, it means that they'll probably end up taking another haircut. Me, I want songwriter uh, compensation to go up across the board. Casey Ray is the CEO of the Future of Music Coalition. Casey, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. And that's the future of what for this week. If you missed any of this show and you want to hear it again, we're at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search Future of What. Reed Harvey is our engineer. Will Watts and John Sepulvedo produce the show. Special thanks to Amy Polanski and all the folks at Digital One Studios in Portland. Next week, we're going to have a live call-in show. If you or someone you love is a musician, it's a perfect opportunity for you to get your questions on the industry answered. Send those questions to thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com and make sure to tune in to X-Ray FM at noon on Tuesday for that show. I'm Portia Sabin. Thanks for listening.